hi, and welcome to another edition of Safepedia Safety Talks. We're teaming up once again with the 1% Safer Foundation to bring you more great speakers from their conference, live and direct, happening April the 28th, 2021. If you haven't already, please use the link below to register at their upcoming conference. We have a great show in store for you today with some phenomenal speakers that are going to be at the conference. Joining us is Dr. Philippe Delacue, Associate Professor of Decision Sciences at the George Washington University School of Business. Stuart Hughes, who's the head of health and safety at Mercedes AMG Patronus Formula One team. And Robert Stevenson, the founding Formster and CEO of Formscores and the founder of Inside Out Leaderboard. Now let's dive into the discussion. I'm really excited to have the three of you here. It's great. Thank you. Good to be here. So I'm just going to kick it off and ask you guys to share what are you working on right now? What's your passion project? So, so for me, you know, based in academia, coming from the university side of things, I, I am much more anchored in, in research and theory than in practice, uh, naturally. Um, there's for really my, my passion, what, what keeps me going in, this, um, in, in the safety uh, area is that I'm mostly looking for ways and opportunities to bridge the gap between theory and practice, you, you might say, or, or basically to transfer and leverage the existing body of knowledge we have when it comes to um, human behavior in situations of risk, uh, people's ability to, uh, to judge and comprehend risk, uh, I'm, I'm looking for ways to transfer and leverage what we've known, what we've learned there into a safety context. Um, and, and I'm sure there are so many, so many ways to do this. Um, I mean, we've, we've already put our hands on some of the low hanging fruit, um, but, but there, there's probably much more to do. And, and the way I see it, really, researchers are participating in this endeavor of building the foundation of knowledge, right? I, adding very small layers one percent at a time you might say right and, and the implications are not always immediately clear uh but what's for sure is that it will inform the best practice of tomorrow so that's kind of how i position myself in this whole spectrum between you know those that are really close to the you know the factory floor uh and those that are more like in the ivory towers you know to use the kind of example and and you know, the, the one last thing I'll say about this is that, um, you know, there's this famous uh, uh, citation, quotation of, uh, of uh, the psychologist uh, Kurt Lewin, a, a sort of German-American psychologist, uh, very well known. Um, he said, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. And, and that is so true. I have measured it so many times. Uh, often we oppose the two uh, when a theory could really be your guiding principle and and it can only evolve and get better over time, right? Um, for example, let me take one example and I'll, I'll just, the idea of nudge in safety, for example. Yeah. That, that came straight from all the research that was done on framing. Yeah. That started in the 70s and 80s. And this idea of nudge was not originally thought about for safety, but rather for 
public policy and health and you know other things um and it, it's a direct implication of 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 a theory that was not necessarily geared towards you know safety so that's kind of how, how i position myself here yeah we'll come back to that because nudge theory is a good one Stuart, what about you what are you into these days oh thanks i'm glad we're going to come back to the nudge theory as well because um I'm keen on that. I really like the fact that it's not a safety thing that's come into safety. And I think that's really important. And there's a few things on my radar. So um, in my kind of day-to-day -day work life, um, you know, you can't not kind of have a conversation at the moment without talking about COVID. And we're just at the part of starting our season. So we're in the dying embers of car build and launching our car and doing all the marketing around, you know, just about to start the season. And um we didn't do any of this with COVID last year. So it's the last kind of thing that we're uh, facing a new challenge on, I suppose. So um, making sure that we, we deliver that properly is, is a key thing. But kind of, I guess the passion project for me at the moment is um, twofold. One, making the employees the heroes of safety. So a lot of people have been saying thank you to our safety team for all the hard work that we've done. And I've kind of stopped saying, no, oh, thank you very much. And I've started saying, actually, it's all the hard work that you've done. You've done all of the things around the containment, around the controls. And actually, you're the people that's making this happen. All I've done is given you the tools. And uh, so that's that's one thing I'm really passionate about at the moment. And then the second thing is this kind of elimination of friction. So um, I find friction creeps its way into the world of occupational safety and health. And I want to try and reduce that, and whether that's from people getting information into a safety system or getting information out or just the communication between safety and business leaders. And I think that's one of the things that uh, can truly drive this kind of 1% uh, improvement that we're, that we're looking for. Um, so those are kind of the two, I guess, passion projects. And then, and then you know, as I've explained, the day-to-day -day challenges um, as they come up in, in the fun world of motor racing. And Rob actually checked out your form the other day. So I know about that. Oh, thank you for checking it out. So uh, I'm probably representing more the health side of health and safety and specifically mental health and well-being. And um, it's always a bit of a story when I, I say what I'm doing. So I'll try and just be succinct with the short version. So I'm trying to help inspire the creation of mentally healthier workplaces and, and society. And there's a couple of big ways that I try and do that. One is by helping smash the stigma by showcasing senior leaders who are open about their challenges of mental ill health to then create that ripple effect through the organization that look it's okay to seek help when you're struggling with, with mental illness but increasingly i find myself in in a lot of the talks that i do to organizations inspiring people to get on that journey of well-being so prevention or promotion of positive health so that we don't fall into distress and I think that's a big opportunity for everybody in society and workplaces right now is an acceptance that we're on that kind of mental health continuum, but that we can influence where we are on that continuum by being intentional about our well-being. Um, so that's what I kind of do on the, the, the kind of mental health, the stigma and, and the prevention side. The other big project and the other big passion, and um, I'm keen to get into nudge theory as well, gentlemen, so uh, that's all good, is the form score. So what I'm trying to do with form score is provide a very simple but new way of communicating how we're feeling about our well-being with a score out of 10 and use that number 
to connect people via a technology solution. So if somebody starts to struggle with a four out of 10 or a three out of 10, they've got people in their circle who can see that via a mobile application, and then that can facilitate peer support. So we, we're, we're working on that. But I think that's a bigger project of trying to really kind of democratize mental health a little bit and um, facilitate that kind of peer support amongst you know, trusted colleagues, friends and family members. So let's, since we're all bringing it up, the nudge theory, why don't we dive into that a little bit? And maybe, um, Philip, are you able to kind of give some insight on where nudge theory actually started from? Because you started on that. Sure. Uh, so you could say that nudge came from essentially um, exploiting what was found to be a, a sort of a limitation of human behavior or, or human judgment when it comes to appreciating uh, uh, decision situations. Um, we tend to frame things narrowly. We tend to not see the bigger picture. And mm -hmm. therefore, our choices sometimes are predictable. Um, but in safety, predicting is the first step, but that's not enough. You want to influence behavior. And the idea of nudge is really to design the choice architecture. If you understand people's pensions, you know, natural, you know, tendencies and, and pensions, uh, maybe you could design the environment to sort of, so they will do the right thing naturally. Mm -hmm. You won't have to force them basically, or to tell them uh, that's really literally the idea of the nudge, right? The gentle little push. Um, I've got one very recent example that I am, uh, I'm always, you know, on the lookout for, examples or better examples. One very recent example that I, that I had was I was driving down a, a road um, in France. It was a divided highway. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I noticed that the, uh, the left lane had a different kind of pavement than the right lane. Mm -hmm. And when you use the left lane for passing a car, um, it was kind of very noisy and, and, yep. and less nice and smooth to drive than on the right lane. So what you would do is you would naturally maybe use the left lane for passing a car, but then you wouldn't want to stay there. You naturally yeah. would want to go back to the right, right? Which is what the signs are telling you to do all the time, right? Kind of a, but there, I thought it was a very clever way of doing nudge. You don't need to force me. You don't need to, I will do it naturally, right? Um, <laughs> So that's so you have to realize that nudge is really to me very much in the spirit of what we're trying to do in 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 the what we call prescriptive decision analysis or prescriptive behavior is we start with a descriptive theory about what people do how they mm -hmm. behave let's understand this let's wrap our head around this what what will make them do what they do and then how could we exploit this to redesign basically uh, and to or to prescribe or to train them or, you know, there are many implications, obviously. But that, to me, that would be my way of describing how kind of the age of nudge came about. By the way, I believe the term was coined by uh, Dick Thaler uh, at the University of Chicago and Cass Sunstein. Uh, they both have, a, you know, they wrote the book, you know, called titled Nudge. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, Dick Thaler is a Nobel Prize winner in 2018, if I'm right, in economics. So you see that Interestingly, these are ideas that started from economics and psychology or really the nexus, kind of the, the meeting point of, of economics and behavioral science. Well, and it's interesting because when, when I learned about nudge theory 
in social work, I have a social work background, in fact, um, you know, my understanding is that this theory has actually been around since 1979. So it actually goes back and my understanding was the, the theory was developed by um, uh, Daniel and Amos. Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos Tversky, yes. Were, yeah, yeah. The term of uh, framing, yeah. Framing. As I said, the starting point was framing, framing effects. Yeah. And so, you know, we always think when we see something, we read it on the internet, it's new. And the fact is, is that this is not new. This has been here for a long, long time. You know, and and I always find it interesting that what is old is coming up again in our timeline. What are other people's thoughts? I think, you know, there are some things that are genuinely new, you know, in terms of some of the things that come through from technological advances and changes in the environment, etc. But there are also things that are just remodeled. You know, uh, Simon Sinek's quite a master at re rehashing something to make it more palatable for today's audience and I think you know the journey that from framing to nudge and wherever it goes next um, is, is probably on that and I don't think we should be afraid of that I think it's a really good example of where we've been able to make this transition from um, the kind of academia and theoretical world into actual real world benefits and I think there is a uh, there's some lessons to be learned there. I think one of the things I find in 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 the world of occupational safety and health is that sometimes I find academia quite impenetrable. I don't I, I don't find a way in, or I don't find something that's grabbing me. And actually, there's loads to get excited about, but there is there's some kind of translation um, that just doesn't happen you know into the day to day world for me. And actually, a snippet on LinkedIn of a video clip that explains something quite quickly, I can digest and I'm in and I'll go and research and learn a bit more. But actually, you know, I think there's a there's a real good avenue to take what's happening in academia and bring it into the real world in a way that in a way that we can use. And I wonder whether you can actually make use of nudge theory to do that in a way that you could get the information into the OSH profession in a, in a way that, you know, is a little bit more accessible to us all. And I think that's one of the things I'd really like to see, um, you know, as we move along in, in, in the future. And I think there's some great examples of um, just flipping people's behaviours. You know, one of the one of the fun things I learned recently was one of the um, whether you sign up for stuff. Basically, one of the big I can't remember which internet provider it was, but basically they worked out that customers were really put off from buying stuff because they had to register their details. But if you checked out as a guest. I think it's something like 98% of people will fill in their details after they've purchased something to repeat purchase. But they were finding the same amount of people would, wouldn't even start a purchase because that was a barrier to it. And I think it's understanding how we can identify the barriers. You know, you could take that logic into safety. What are the things that are stopping people telling us about stuff? And then actually, how can we enhance once they've done that, that they'll keep telling us about stuff? So I, I think there's some really good things we can learn from, from nudge theory. I heard a um, a great example, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit on this this study, but it was in the the, the safety world, and um, they 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 basically got protective gloves um, and looked at the utilisation of them, and then they painted on the the, the kind of hand um, on the outside of the glove, so you had a visible. Um, 
steer of you know actually your hand is beneath that 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 glove and this really encouraged you know a, a marked change in behavior to 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 be more safe and there were less accidents around those uh, that that item of protective clothing which was interesting but the, the bit for me on on nudge theory it's you know behavioral science gets a fair bit of bad press in the way it's used by big tech and i think we're seeing a backlash against big tech right now is in terms of what i do how can we kind of nudge behaviors in in the positive sense and to um create outcomes that are that are good for people and society so can we create the situation where people become more in, intentional about their well-being and more literal about their well-being um more intentional to to then create this kind of herd immunity around mental health because people are looking out for each other a little bit more now i think there's some quite interesting things we can try and do with that but it, it starts with encouraging people to get on that journey which is where i think nudge theory can be helpful i think rob also it's looking at the trends of stuff isn't it like one of the things that happened with us we've launched the well-being program and had health assessments at work and there was a proportion of people that, that didn't want to do it and actually their behaviors have changed because they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to be told you know that they essentially their well-being wasn't very good then they've gone and made lifestyle choices to improve their well-being so that for round two they are going to sign up but they're going to go in there in a much better position and I would never have kind of thought that that would happen in in the environment that I work in and, and kind of with people's behaviours. But it's really interesting that, you you know, we think, oh, this is a great thing for people and everybody will sign up and do it because you get your status and you learn how to improve. But actually not doing it has driven the behaviours that we wanted at the end of it. So we're less precious about everybody's got to do this if the end result is what you want. And I think there's just some interesting things, I think in the, you know, particularly in the mental health world, if we can get people to the desired outcome, but maybe not force through the, you know, the traditional process, I think there's a really powerful way for us to do that. And I love your scoring system. I think it's such a, a, a there's a simplicity to it that everybody, you know, everybody understands where you are on a one to 10 scale, don't they? You know, if you're having a 10, if anybody's having a 10 at the moment, they're not telling the truth, I don't think, to be honest with you. Everyone's <laughs> got to be a nine at the maximum because it's hard. But there is there's a real simplicity to it. And you just you're you're what you're doing is you're stripping away all of the um all of the stigma, all of the bad connotations with these things. You're just simplifying it with a number, and then you can people can take action based on that number, and it just yeah. breaks down that kind of hurdle and i think it, i genuinely think it's really clever so i, I you know I, i'm a big fan of that so yeah thank 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 you you know we're, we're much more liable to say i'm a four out of ten than we are to say i'm experiencing anxiety or i'm i'm, I'm worried about the future or it, it's just a safe space and it's a non-threatening way to talk about it we still need to act on it and we still need to have the provision in place and the resources and the benefits and the education but as a starting point, what we're finding is people are much more happy to share that information than they are to really properly answer that question. How are you? You know, it's, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. I'm OK. And people walk on. It's a, a ritual. We don't expect to answer it. And going back to the, the way that the nudge theory works, really, it's about taking a step back in understanding how do people think? 
about a problem or solving or, or a situation? And then how are they making the decisions? And how can we help kind of not, not enforce it, but exactly just kind of create a path, a natural path where people can walk along? That's what I understand. That's what I, I really enjoy about it. It's like when my little boy was younger, um, you know, he would make a mess of his room with toys. And then I would create some sort of contest about cleaning up the toys that each of us would get a reward. Like I'd get one too, right? If I won, but I made a little bit of contest and it's amazing how fast he got at cleaning up his room before we even started the game. Like he's like, I already won because I did it. I was like, great you know and so there I think there's a bit in the psyche there about getting people also excited what are people's thoughts yes absolutely I mean you I think you you just uh, gave another very nice uh, example of, of nudge like obtaining a desirable behavior without having to to force it um, on people now of course taken to a to an extreme uh, you know, it, could, it cuts both ways, of course, you could say, you know, it could be exploited to get people to do things that may be more in the interest of some than others and so on. So, um, so what, what I would kind of advocate for, for me, the, the, the next evolution for, for these ideas is how about nudging yourself? Like what kind of mental strategies could you adopt to essentially recognize an opportunity to create a little nudge for yourself. Um, and um, I mean, th this is kind of still new, you know, new things that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, but, uh, but I think that would be kind of the next step where it's more like decentralized. It's not like a mastermind that has created the choice or architecture. We, we will still need some of that, of course, but it's each one of us is capable of, of um, overcoming our own limitations by exercising those, um, those options, uh, you know, so to speak. And, and I just want to say one other thing that I, I want to bounce back on that you mentioned, uh, Tamara, about how long it took, like some of the starting point of this is like the late 70s, you know, framing effects by Kahneman and Tversky and all the many other examples and demonstrations of this. And that you're looking, what does it take so long? And, and I want to remind all of us that we have to be we are in for the long run in these things. You know, this is not atypical that it takes so long for basically knowledge and, and technology to transfer, to percolate or to become, you know, to find its application somewhere. Um, and it's true that sometimes we could do more to sort of a, um, have a better value chain there, you know, have more actors all along the way, all along the chain to sort of help this. Uh, but it's not unusual. I mean, I could share a very quick example. When I was a graduate student at MIT in the in the eighties, um, one of I was sharing the office with another, another graduate student who had a very special computer with a big screen. It was in a color screen for the time. You know, we had the little green screens, right, uh, at, at the time, and. Um, and he was working on a project on designing what is the best data structure to represent maps and so on, geographic information system. We were all curious about like, why do you do this? Why, why does it matter? And he was explained, well, the project I'm working on, they envision that in 20, 25 years from now, people will walk around with little devices um, that would just help them position themselves and navigate through the city, the street, the roads and, and, and whatnot and, and so on. And we were like, 
oh, come on, get out of here. That's like, first of all, we don't need that. Second of all, you know why? You know, this sounds like sci-fi, but this is to show that I have a concrete example of what you see today. You had to lay the foundations of it so, so long ago to be able to add all these layers and to, you know, and to, and, you know, to, to, to get where, where you are now, right? It's, it's just like, it's, you know, it's climbing the mountain. You cannot be there immediately, basically. I think the point about sort of individual taking a, uh, individual accountability for, for for nudging oneself and and Stuart linked into you know kind of your employees as the heroes of safety, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you know in in a lot of workplaces we've taken away the office right now. We've got people working at home, um, they're not commuting, and yet they're working longer hours with fewer breaks in the day. They're not getting outside. They're taking their lunch at the desk. And we almost had that enforced discipline that, to take those breaks and those little moments away from the work face and the screen. Um, and, and to bring in that individual accountability requires a bit of literacy, doesn't it? Because left to type, we, we, we just sit here at the desk and I'm talking about intelligent you know, <laughs> human beings here. And so it doesn't make sense that that's, that's what we revert to. And I think as humans, we've, we've sort of got to train ourselves to nudge ourselves a little bit. And I think as employers, we've probably got a bit of a duty of care, not to provide all of the solutions, but to inspire and provide the knowledge to get on that journey. I think, I, I think it's really true. I think it's very interesting this time to see, you know, how, what people revert to. And, you know, there's a bit of a joke in our house that, you know, the commute downstairs isn't too bad. Um, but the truth is you can spend your whole day just sat down at, at your computer and then, you know, everybody likes generating new terms. I'm hearing this psychological stamina um, coming up a lot. And that actually, that's what we need to kind of get through this and maybe a few more false dawns. And it, it's an interesting concept because I think what we need to be doing is, is we need to be encouraging people to build their self-discipline. And I think the only way that you're going to have a truly you know, healthy and safe work place is through self-discipline and it, it you know to come back to a point earlier you can't you can't complete safety you can't you can't win it if you know what i mean it's it's an it's it's an infinite game um and you're you know it, it is an everyday task and it requires everybody to give something to it every day and that's why i like the concept of one percent safer it's one of the reasons i chose to get, get involved because it's something you can get behind that you know it's an easy concept to understand it might be a difficult one to execute but actually the, the smaller we break things down into the easier it is to to deploy you know everybody can do something every day to improve safety in their workplace or in their home or in their health or in their life and i think that that's the, that's the, the key message message we have to get get across but it does come back to this um you know how do how do you create that self-discipline how do you catch yourself how do you nudge yourself out from those behaviors that you know maybe aren't um, helpful or or doing the right things for you it's very interesting then if you've been I'm not a massive rugby fan so I can't pretend to know much about it but sport in general behind closed doors you know with no fans it's been really interesting to see you've seen some teams really perform outperform probably their their ranking or their capabilities and you've seen other teams capitulate and the impact of you know not having the crowd and and, and everything else been a really interesting thing to, to kind of watch and see and I, and I think it's almost the same in you know working from home environment where you haven't got the pressures of the work environment you haven't got the 
um, the atmosphere of all of your colleagues. So, so what is it that you're doing? What is it that's driving you? What's the, you know, what are the, what's the arousal factor for doing the work? Some people just like doing a good job. Some people are just actually, you know, the longer I'm there, the better, whatever it might be. But those are the things that I think at the moment are going to be a big challenge for us in, in our world moving forward, particularly when, you know, there's some organisations that are saying we're never going back to the office. You know, you can Spotify, for example, you can go and work wherever you want, you know, sign me up, I'll be on the beach in Rio and I'll be doing my job from there. Thank you very much. And there's other organisations like Netflix, for example, that said as soon as we're available to, we're all coming back in because that's where we're best and creative. And there's going to be a blend somewhere between that. And for some people, it's going to be a massive shock. And for others, you know, it's, it's exactly what they want and they're craving. And how we how we manage this and how we deal with you know, the mental health aspects of it, the well-being aspects and the safety aspects is going to be really important. And that's why I like this concept. I think it can help us do just that. That is so interesting. Um, uh, what you just shared and Rob uh, just before, the, it really... To me, this idea of taking things individually at the individual level of, of sort of internalizing this and, you know, self-nudge, whatever we want to call it in the future. Um, it's really what I call more generally rationality 2.0, the kind of awareness of our own limitations and so on. And, you know, rationality is defined in economic, in psychology of like acting in your best interest, not, you know, not doing harm to yourself and this and that. And, you know, there are different principles from, from uh, economic theory, uh, you know, to, and philosophy even about you know, principles of rationality. But I think rationality 2.0 is actually taking it to the next level where you know that rationality 1.0 is not sufficient in a way, right? It's, it's not going to give you all the answers because you have these limitations. Um, and I have a very concrete example of, of something, Rob, you know, with the ideas that Rob was mentioning earlier. Uh, you know, when we, when we switched suddenly to 100% online at the university, um, it took me about a couple of weeks to realize, my, all this time of day I used to be spending standing up because I was in the classroom. Uh, I was walking around to a meeting or another. And um, I, was, I was spending a lot of hours a day standing in the classroom, gesticulating even and so on. And now I'm just sitting in front of a computer and I know sitting too long is not so good for you. So after a couple of weeks, I decided to equip myself with like a lecture and you're like, a, you know, I'm standing now for this kind of thing for the, I decided, look, I'm going to keep doing it kind of the way I was doing before, you know, having some hours of the day I'm standing, others I will be sitting in front of the computer, catching up with email and so on. But, but this was, to me, this is a concrete example of, of sort of taking charge, not being told, not waiting until, you know, you got a recommendation from doctors or, or others to do that. It's, a, you know, um, so in, interesting stuff, really. Um, more, more to do definitely about all of this. We are health and safety professionals, and one of the things I do want to also discuss a bit is um, you were talking about, Stuart, in the beginning about the friction of information in and out, right? And I thought that was interesting because I come from the retail, grocery retail industry, and a lot of times um, the corporate head office would just kind of send down all the safety programs in a package and just thought like, we're just gonna have people in a room, let them watch a video or something and somehow through osmosis, it's all gonna get in there and they're gonna do it. And so in my environment, because I actually come from being a site worker with employees on site, we had 150, 
we kind of threw away that and, and still do the, the engagement of talking with the employees about how is this new program that we're being given by corporate going to actually resonate in where you're working. And I'm looking at um, commercial space now, and I see they're trying to use nudge theory with the, um, the, the social distancing where people are standing. But there seems to be a gap in the knowledge around providing the staff a clear understanding the value of using those spots to protect themselves. Are people seeing that also? What are people's thoughts? I think for me, so there's, there's two ways of this, isn't there? I think we've all met the person in, in an environment where um, their rationality is, is gone and they say, you know, this is, this is the rule. We follow the rule. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like I could just step over there and do what I need to do and, and come back and no harm will happen. And they're very much wedded to, I've got my instruction, I stick to my instruction, and, and that's that. And that I find very difficult. And then at the other end of this, you've got people who are like, I've received an instruction, but I'll never follow the instruction. And, you know, that causes some harm. And there's a bit in the middle, I think, that we need to get to, which is the, which is the why. What, why. Why is this information important to you? Why is it being, you know, given to you? And what are the impacts of, you know, either following it or, or not following it. And, and there's a, I saw a really cool video this morning on LinkedIn, which was about the car industry and how essentially they re, refocused on what they were doing around safety. And they, now a car is basically designed to protect you in any form of crash. There's airbags and impacts and all kinds of amazing technology. And that was designed because they were like, anytime somebody gets in a car, you could crash it. And they just change the, the theory. So actually, if any time you can get in a car, you can crush it. Let's protect the people rather than spending all of our efforts trying to teach them how to drive better or deal with the environment better, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in the safety world, there's a lot to learn from that that would help stop some of this just central dissemination of we've done a safety process. Boom, there you go. And then it goes out into the ether and people go, I don't understand what, like, why we're doing it, what it's intended for. And I think that's that's one of the things I see friction points in is, is that kind of we've done something and somebody else is like, I don't know why we've done this. And then the other friction point, I think, is just we can eliminate some of the time. You know, like, do you need an hour long training session or can you do it in a two minute video? And I guarantee you in 10, 15 years time, there won't be day long training sessions because nobody will function that way. Everybody will be in short, short, sharp bursts of information being brought in and I think those are some of the things that I see you know instead of filling out a form can I just whatsapp or text you know my safety observation into my safety system and it's in and if I need more detail we can go through that and that but actually what's the first thing I need to do I just need to know about it get it to me as quickly as possible those are the things I think you can reduce the lag of the information coming in and if and but you've got to be able to respond to it and it's that response time i think that's, that's going to be the critical effort to to make that successful yeah i i probably don't see see the health and safety world from the same you know perspectives but i i think that that point of rationality is really interesting and and the the idea of why because i think 
you know, the pandemic has certainly thrown rationality out of the window for a lot of people. And we've got this desire to get back to whatever we perceive normal to be. There's, there's things that we're missing with social connections. And then there's going to be, on the flip side, the, the fear um, and, and psychological unsafety of, of coming back into the workplace. And, um, you know, I think really giving people the why and giving people the understanding of why these things are in place and, and, and what is the thinking behind it and, and letting them own the health and safety challenges in the workplace and, and beyond, I think is super important because I think I've, I've definitely seen some, again, very intelligent people behave in slightly irrational ways through the last 12 months, which is understandable. So I think that, that, that giving the purpose, giving the why, for me, that resonated quite strongly. Absolutely. I, I would say that uh, giving the why is so fundamental. Um, it, again, you, we have theories in, in, in psychology. I'm thinking of the wasn't selection tasks. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a little logical test where people have to, they are given a rule, verify if the rule is correct or not. They're, it's about cards with a letter on one side, a number on the other side, and whether, you know, if there's a consonant on one side, there should be an even number on the other side and so on and turn the cards to verify the rule. And it's shown that people are pretty bad at that. But if you put the same rule in a logical context that people can understand, like, you know, you have to verify letters that have postage on one side and they are sealed on the other side. If they are sealed, they must have a higher postage. Just turn the letters just to verify if they are legal or not, right? Suddenly people make no mistake, right? So, so this idea of um, uh, that, that you must know the how and why, you know, you, you must know the why, you must, people are not capable of abstraction and seeing the bigger picture nearly as much as we, as we imagine when we are trying to make rules and things. You're gonna make it easy for them. You have to sort of really put it in context uh, to the largest extent possible. And then you realize that people actually can perform really well. Um, they can understand the logic very well. Uh, just make it concrete, you know, on, on something they can relate to, not, not just something very abstract uh, that just it, sort of coming from above. Uh, so I totally relate with what uh, Stuart and Rob just said about this uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, know, understanding the why and, and, and working on making sure that this is clear to people. Um, it's totally fundamental. Is there a bit around, um, and I, I think about this a lot as well, is, is people's different motivations on this agenda. So if we're striving for, you know, one percent safer if we're striving for a mentally healthy world or whatever our goals are the, the people within that for me I, I think some people are motivated for self and self-safety and self-improvement and others are very motivated for creating societies that are safe for others um just throwing it out there really in terms of what you see Stuart in the workplace you know do, do you have those camps of, of of some people are certainly very motivated about the other and some are motivated about the self I think it's an, it's a very interesting um, question, Bob, because uh, I work in possibly the truest team environment I've ever been in in my life uh, currently, and you know everybody is motivated to the to the same end goal. You know, every single employee is tasked with bringing their tenth of a second to the car. You know, and that is from whether you're you know um, cleaning the site and making sure that you know it's free from risk from that element of it, or whether it is your you know, designing the latest kind of update to a to a front wing, um, to whether you're actually manufacturing the wheel nuts that go that go on during a race. You know, everybody has that same objective. So, um, I think we have a 
we've got a very strong collective kind of goal which which helps us I think the interesting thing for me though is 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 where you break down the individual and the groups and I think this comes down to commitment individuals make commitment groups aren't that good at making commitments because of the things that you've just mentioned in terms of the different drivers for people so actually mm-hmm. you know I, I think you have to really get down to the individual level of the commitment then to then build up this kind of you know collective thought process and power to to act in that certain certain way um i think one of the other things you mentioned earlier was was having people having ownership of the safety challenges i think also the really important thing is that they have ownership of the solutions so um one of the you know i work with an incredibly intelligent workforce that do lots of things that i can't really comprehend and i love it because i'm i'm hyper curious so i run around and kind of just stick my nose into stuff and ask lots of questions and I'm not positive if they're stupid or not because I don't know if they're stupid or not I'm just interested but what I often tend to do is say well you know from my viewpoint this is what I'd like to try and achieve you know how would you do that and what are the benefits if you could do that and we've brought people outside of processes you know and really stop them being exposed to risk but actually it's driven performance improvement in the way that a process is is delivered and they'd have never have done it if I hadn't asked the safety question, but they'd also have never have done it if I'd have said the solution is you need to be at, you know, you need to be here or, you know, if it was so prescriptive, they'd have never have found that performance game. And I think that is a, is just a key notion like, yes, the challenge is yours as an individual. And I want you to commit to the, you know, whether it's health or whether it's safety, or whether it's well-being. But actually, I want you to own the solutions and I want to, you know, we can learn from that. And, and I think that's where the power is. Um, I'm really about kind of empowering the individual. And then I think you get a, you get a, a, a better group performance out of it. And it's, see, it's interesting because I come from the grocery retail, which is a totally different environment than what you're talking about, because we have individuals who are just in it for themselves. They're coming to work to make a paycheck. And they, they, like, they, they even say, I don't care about anything else. I'm just here to clock my time, which is a totally different mentality than when I was talking to the people in the bakery that they, they have to build things together because they're building cakes and stuff. So it's kind of like your team where they're looking after the car, where these guys are building something. And so they also look out for one another. So I think there's something there. Yeah, I think a hundred percent. You have to. You have to have this. Um, and there is. A, I, I also don't think there's anything wrong in a work environment. Generally, don't believe this is to be wrong. Is if you are just turning up to earn some money because there's other things that you want to do with your life that are more important to you than work. I don't think that is particularly a bad thing to have in place. But I think we need to tap into that in a way that means that you can get into the hearts and minds and attach them to the value of safety. And it's actually okay. You might not care about the, you know, the environment that you're in work-wise and the people around you. But actually, if you're doing all of this money, earning all of this money because you uh, you want to go to the shooting range at the weekend and you're really interested in buying X, Y, or Z, you know, gun to take down there and show off to your friends. If you have your accident and you can't do that, that's going to have such a negative impact on your life. You have to find the hook for people. And and I I think sometimes we there's a potential to look down on people that you know are there just to just to earn some money no absolutely fine but you know our challenge i think in our environment is how do you connect 
with with those people and I, I think you know there's to take us almost full circle back to the start of, of nudge you know what what is it you know that's intrinsic in their motivation that you, that that you can tap into because you're not going to get them with any of the other kind of group mentality elements or a competitiveness of their department against another department you know all of those things that we've spoken about just will, will, will fall flat so it just presents you with another set of challenges that you go okay well you know now I understand this where can I go and find something that might be that motivation and again this you know I'd be interested in what in the academia kind of behind this of where they've studied you know people that aren't particularly motivated by anything else other than the money at the end of the day so what, what is it that makes them a valuable contributor to the work environment or can you make them a value, valuable contributor to the work environment it's an interesting question now i know we're coming to the end of our time this is a really great conversation i wish we could just keep going on it um i wanted to ask though can you provide a recommendation that will help our listeners who did their own 1% pledges like you guys did in the book? Because for some people, you know, taking an idea that you have in your head and making it actionable is a really stressful and can be overwhelming. So how do you take an idea and then get it actionable? Philip, maybe you can kick it off. Okay. Um, I can probably contribute two small things, like, you know, in the 1% spirit, right? Uh, um, one, f- first, because, yes, I think this idea of, like, incremental easy gains, it's, it's really the way to go. Again, that's the same idea as nudging, is don't take, you know, we want to take the path of least resistance to something. And if there's a path of lower resistance to get to the same goal than another one, why not? That's what human nature, it, even the laws of nature, right? Like the light will will go through the prism and so on to sort of a, um, uh, but uh, so, so so here are two two thoughts that came to mind when you prompted for that, uh, that question. Um, well, even when zero is achievable in something, uh, it could be overwhelming to people in many cases. Let me just take a simple example, smoking. Um, if you're a smoker, quitting might be so hard. So, but what about, giving up one cigarette per day and see if you could sustain that. And then maybe another one and another one, right? If smoking is bad for you, smoking less has got to be better. So that's progress at least, right? So um, that's one thing. What very simple, identify something where you could quit a habit or you could do something by saying, look, what would be the end goal? That may be just too big a mountain to climb what is one single step that I could take? What would be a step like? That's one thing. The other thing that I think is important to me, to my area of research, would be to say, occasionally check something that you're sure about. Do check, uh, even when you feel very sure. And you might be surprised in some cases. Um, and the, you know, this is really to combat the phenomenon we call the overconfidence syndrome, right? That was well documented again in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, it is not just about the redundancy principle of like, okay, you have checked twice. It really is about learning about your own sense of, of certainty. And that it could be sometimes inflated, uh, misguided, erroneous, and, and so on. So double checking is about getting feedback. So look for opportunities to get feedback on, on yourself, on your beliefs, on your judgments, and so on. And sometimes, you know, 
Double checking something you feel very sure about, which normally you wouldn't feel compelled to check if you're sure, uh, might be one simple way to, uh, to sort of learn, learn about yourself and your, and your limitations. I'm always a bit reticent to make um, suggestions because I like to either meet the individuals or the organisations that you make suggestions to to make sure that they fit. But I, I will do because I think it's a it's a great question. So I, I think there's three things that I'd say. One is go out and buy the book. Go out and and get the one percent safer book and take a read through of it. And if something resonates with you, you know, then start to think about how how you could could apply that. And I think really important thing is, you know, don't be put off from starting a journey. You know, doing something is better than doing nothing. And, and that first step, um, as Philippe just alluded to, it, it is, is the thing that kind of kicks it off. Um, I think the other, the other element for me is, is this level of personal commitment. I think everybody can make a personal commitment. So, you know, if the hardest thing is, is to start doing something, give yourself a personal commitment, make a statement, Start the morning, look in front of the mirror, say it to yourself and then, you know, give yourself a nice cheeky reward at the end of the day, um, whatever that might be to make yourself feel a bit better, that you've done that. And there's a thing that James Clear writes about in Atomic Habits, which is about um, how to build habits and, and kind of construct behaviour that's useful for you. And it's attaching it to something that's already existing and exciting. So one example is brushing your teeth everybody brushes their teeth so if you add something to your routine when you brush your teeth like doing squats for example I used to do kickboxing and that was one of my favorite things to do was I was brushing my teeth you know standing my horse riding stance it was quite a good way of building a good habit and strength but there might be other options that you could do that with where you go okay I'm going to add this to you know I'm going to listen to a podcast during my morning commute because that's going to help me learn some knowledge. There's little things like that that I think you can do really well. Um, you know, and if you're making a personal commitment, maybe you add that time into something you enjoy doing. So I'm going to go and make myself a coffee, part of my coffee. I'm going to take a longer walk around the site and I'm going to make a safety observation. Easy to do. And, you know, you can do it every single day. So that would be my recommendations. Stuart, I have to say that when I'm uh, letting my espresso brew in the uh, in the machine, I do a few squats while that's all all happening. So there you go. Um, so 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 for me, I, you know, I always kind of stick with my area of passion for this, but it, it's about giving yourself the gift of self reflection, um, asking you to answer that question: How are you today? Around your mental well being, and realize that actually our mental well being is highly personal. It's highly individual. So. Some, you know, some of us might need to focus on sleep, others on exercise, others on our social connections, others balancing stress with moments of recovery, some on finding a sense of purpose, some on financial well-being, whatever it might be, it's highly individual. But just think, how are you today about that? And then take those micro steps that Philippe mentioned in just trying to nudge that forward, because... Sometimes I think we think a well-being journey has got to end up with running a marathon or meditating for an hour every day. We, we just need to start and, and be playful, be curious. But know this, that it is one of the big performance gains we can all make as individuals by being further up that continuum towards thriving. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so, so much, all of you, for carving out some time in your very busy schedules to come and talk today. Thank you. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us for this episode. 
I hope you really enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to check out 1% Safer at 1%safer.com to learn more about how you can pledge your idea to keep your workplace 1% safer daily. If you haven't already, please navigate to the conference link below so you can register for the 1% Safer Live and Direct Conference happening April the 28th, 2021. Now, if you're looking for more resources for health and safety to share out with your network and your teams, please navigate over to safepedia.com where you can find new content posted daily. Until next time, stay safe.